sustainable care team is exploring how care arrangements currently in crisis in parts of the UK can be made sustainable and deliver well-being outcomes. In this sustainable care and COVID-19 podcast series, our researchers and special guests discuss how the pandemic has impacted the different parts of the care sector we are studying. everyone to one of our sustainable care and COVID podcasts. Today I am very pleased to welcome you to talk about a very important topic and timely topic of home care migrant workers in the context of Brexit in the UK and COVID across the globe. I'm delighted to have with me great guests who have done excellent work in this area. First Professor Sarah Charlesworth uh, who is a professor of gender work and regulation at the RMIT University in Australia. Her recent research is focused on aged care workers in cross-national perspectives, also focusing on migrant workers and decent work. Welcome, Sarah. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you very much, Sarah. And we also have Dr. Ricardo Rodriguez, who is the head of health and care unit at the European Center in Vienna. He has carried out comparative research on a number of areas pertaining to long-term care, including working conditions of migrant and native care workers. Welcome. Thank you for coming, Ricardo. Thank you very much for having me. And we have from our very own team, Dr. Agnes Turnpenny, who is a researcher and he, she's currently at the Institute of Public Care at Oxford Brookes University. Welcome, Agnes. Hello. Hi, everyone. And I am uh, Professor Shireen Hussain, uh, Professor of Health and Social Care Policy at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, and I led the stream of work looking at migrant care workers um, in home care in the UK in the context of Brexit. So welcome to this timely episode. And we all know that uh, countries across the globe have escalating demands for long-term care uh, with particular needs for home care, where people prefer uh, to receive care where they continue living. But we know also that most countries have Face, you know, facing huge challenges in recruiting enough workers. And we know that migrant care workers form a significant contribution to this work. However, the issue does not, does not happen with its own challenges. So I'm just going to take this opportunity to ask our great guests to give us a little bit of context about their own countries and about the contribution of migrant workers and the type of contributions, perhaps the challenges, uh, but also the advantages that they bring. So I might start with the neighboring Austria and ask Ricardo to, to give us a little bit of, um, of a background and context. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. So um, Austria has relied very heavily on, on, on migrant carers as part of its model for long-term care provision, um, dating back really to the um, late 90s when cash for care benefits were implemented and, and, benef and, and families developed this solution in which they um, directly hired 
migrant carers from neighboring countries to act as live-in uh, carers uh, with their um, relatives that were in need of care. This has in the meantime been uh, legalized at the, um, at the end of the um, past decade. And still we have now currently an estimated uh, 60,000 migrant carers uh, that work as these so-called 24-hour carers. So they usually work around sort of a fortnight shifts, shifts uh, staying in people's uh, own homes, uh, usually working as self-employed um, or with contracts with sort of uh, brokering um, agencies. Um, in parallel, we have um, also a large number of migrant carers working in the sort of more formal care sector. We don't have um, very good data on, on, on these migrant care workers, but we've uh, run a recent survey and we uh, found that around 25% of all workers working in both residential care and home care in Austria were migrant, uh, migrant care workers, uh, and we also then then carry out some research in terms of differences in working um, conditions between these these workers and and native uh, workers. So uh, overall, uh, migrant carers form a very important, I would say, part of the Austrian sort of approach to long-term care, and this is also very much driven by the uh, wage differentials um, that exist between Austria and the neighboring countries, but also uh, is very much driven by the geographical location of Austria, which is very much in the heart of Europe and therefore can more easily sort of attract uh, these, uh, these rotating migrant carers uh, to, um, to address its, its uh, care needs. So, thank you very much. So clearly there is a, a form of reliance if the quarter of the workforce um, is coming from, you know, migrant workers, the contribution migrants is really important to uh, the sustainability of, of the whole system. And it was really interesting as well that you said about the circular nature of, of migrants and, um, and the importance of the living care work, which is something maybe not exactly the same here in the UK, but it's really interesting to see uh, how is that facilitated by cash care and the kind of bigger policies of aging in place um, and marketization? So I wonder how the situation is in Australia, Sarah. Thank you, Shireen. Well, it's a very different context. Australia, unlike Austria, is an island. And that in itself, um, that kind of, uh, we call this the tyranny of distance. And that has, has, has created, I suppose, both opportunities and also currently barriers to migrant workers. We historically were a country that's relied on permanent migration, particularly post-war migration. And it used to be the case that certainly in home care, a large proportion of home care workers particularly came from England, Ireland, New Zealand. That has changed dramatically over time. We now see many more home care workers from Southern Asia, and at the same time, our migration settings have changed. So we've moved from a country of permanent migration to much more the European model, perhaps uh, the historical model of guest worker, temporary migration. So increasingly, the migrants who are working both residential care and in home care are arriving on temporary visas. And because the work is whatever qualifications they hold, the work that they're doing is classified as low skilled, they are prevented then from attaining permanency. So they're in a difficult situation. 
perhaps a distinguishing feature in Australia is we've relied on some particular temporary visa programs. International students, for example, make up a large proportion of migrant workers in residential aged care and working holiday makers, whereby people might arrive from um, a variety of different countries. They're allowed to spend a year here uh, traveling, but if they work, then they're, they're allowed to stay an extra year. So we rely a lot on temporary labor. So despite the very large proportion of migrants, so we're sitting at over 50% of migrants in residential aged care, 37% in home care, Australians don't tend to think about or haven't thought about migrants, but when the borders slam shut with COVID uh, and we have huge issues because international students weren't coming anymore, then increasingly the providers or the employers are, are turning to the government to adjust migration policy settings to increase migration. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah and uh, Ricardo. And it's really clear how the geography and history plays a big part here. And it's interesting when we think about the UK position, because it's somehow the pathway to the inclusion of migrants and allowing and opening the door to migrants have taken different forms in relation to the, the broader immigration policies so from relying in the colonial histories and having the uh, work permits and relying on nurses coming perhaps from uh, the Philippines and from India to the open access and the EU market and maybe a little bit of the model that Austria, you know, Ricardo, you were talking about, but now we are heading to Brexit where things are quite going to be different and they're looking interestingly to um, you know ideas like the temporary visa and there are lots of lessons to be learned here. Agnes you've been involved in this project for several years which is the sustainable care project and part of that work you know we've been collecting data and information and views about that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the project and then maybe reflect on what Sarah and Ricardo have said to tell us where the UK is sitting within this within these dynamics. So we started our sustainable care project in 2018. That was just over two years after the Brexit work. So it was clear that the UK was leaving the EU, but at that time there was a lot of uncertainty, especially around what would happen with free movement of labour. So our research project took place in this really kind of fluidly changing and very uncertain context. Sometimes it was difficult to, to balance, but at the same time, it, it, it also had benefits because we could look at the sector at, at a time of change and kind of when opinions and, and positions were forming. Three, we used three kind of broad methods to conduct our research. One was a review of the existing literature and data. We did a scoping review of the outcomes and the challenges of uh, migrant labour in home care in the UK, which, which was published. We also looked at some of the data. Um, Skills for Care publishes data on the, on the nationality of, of the workforce. So we, we looked at kind of trends and changes in, in that data. The, other part of our approach was um, the Delphi survey. The Delphi survey is an expert survey of people who are stakeholders in the different parts of the sector. So we invited experts we identified who were either so 
social care experts or immigration policy experts and also migrant rights organizations. Um, so we asked them about what they think the future of migrant workers in, in social care could look like post-Brexit. The first wave of this survey took part uh, in 2019, so before COVID and before we had a very clear idea of what might happen with the immigration system post-Brexit. Um, so the second wave of the Delphi survey took place in 2020 when, when there was kind of like an emerging picture of, of what the immigration system might look like. And also very importantly, the COVID pandemic was, was really in its first wave of the, of the pandemic and the lockdowns and travel restrictions. And then the third very important part was speaking to different people who are affected differently by, by immigration and social care. So we spoke to provider organizations, so managers, owners of um, home care and living care services, how these kind of impending changes might happen, their, their operation and what their expectations were and, and what sort of immigration system would work for them. We also spoke to some families who, who draw on social care and in particular who, who draw on social care or care and support provided by, by migrant care workers, what their fears and thoughts and perceptions were. And we, we spoke to migrant care workers themselves. So this, this was another very important and large part of our research. Thanks, thanks, Agnes. So it seems um, that the three countries that we're talking about um, look at migrant workers as a core element in the provision of care. So we know in, in the UK, we rely actually on data that is collected, not from the whole sector, collected from part of the formal sector. And it indicates that over the last 20 years, at least, there has been a contribution of at least 20% of the workforce. And what was interesting, that the UK has been through huge changes in immigration policy. So as I, as I mentioned, there was a work permit schemes before 2003, then there was the expansion of the EU, then now we are facing Brexit. And what does it tell us that there is a core element and gap in our supply of workforce that has always been filled by migrant workers, regardless where they're coming from or the pathway and journey to come to the UK. So we're so we kind of starting from a similar point. Um, and obviously in the UK, unlike Australia, we've got a lot of information on living care. We don't have much information about that. It's all anecdotes, but we can see that this is a growing area and a growing area for the recruitment of migrant workers as well. So clearly there has been a lot of interest and a lot of utility of migrants in the long-term care sector. What was rather shocking to the whole systems is the pandemic that has come and closed and shut borders and suddenly give this wake-up call to actually you can't continue relying or if you want to continually relying you have to think about the means to to do that so so maybe we can start first with um, the impact of covid so what happened what changes that countries have taken to respond to to, to the realities of covid bearing in mind the implication of, of migrant care workers so i'm just going to invite ricardo to start 
Thank you, uh, Shirim. Um, so when, when COVID-19 hit um, Austria, was um, Austria very early on implemented quite stringent lockdown measures, and this, of course, included also the closure of uh, of borders uh, very early on in the pandemic. At the same time, because of the relevance of uh, this migrant care uh, model, there were uh, concentrated efforts to um, try to establish channels through which migrant carers could still continue to come to Austria uh, or remain in Austria and thus uh, sort of fulfill the care needs of other people. So fundamentally, this uh, took a number of, um, took from a number of initiatives. On the one hand, um, some of the migrant care workers that were already in Austria when the, when the borders were closed, they were allowed to extend their rotas. So usually they stay, as I said, one fortnight with each family. They were allowed to extend this um, and they received financial compensation uh, up to 500 euros circa for this uh, extension of their uh, unforeseen extension of their rota in, in, in Austria. At the same time, uh, a number of um, trains and charter flights were organized to descending countries, so mostly uh, Romania, uh, Slovak Republic, uh, for example, uh, with the intention to bring uh, in the, the migrant carers that were uh, sort of stranded, so to speak, in their uh, countries of origin. And these migrant carers then were um, placed on quarantine on arrival so that they could then continue to uh, work uh, in the um, houses of the families for, the, for the, 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 the users they were working with. At the same time, as I said, a lot of these migrant care workers, the ones that live or that provide care in people's ho own homes, um, they're self-employed. Uh, and they were able to benefit from a uh, federal scheme that was implemented in Austria, in which people who were self-employed and had seen a reduction in their income during the pandemic could apply for up to 2,500 euros per month of federal support. So this was kind of in a way on the positive side uh, of the reaction to the pandemic or to at least to the closure fundamentally of the um, of the uh, of the borders but at the same time these measures also clearly uh, i think um shown the limits a bit also of this migrant care model in austria in the sense that for example very few of the migrant carers uh, could actually benefit from this support for um, self-employed uh, people because their income was just not sufficient for them to qualify, for example, to pay taxes, which meant that they were then unable, uh, they didn't have a tax number, so they were unable to benefit from this, uh, from this, uh, from this support. At the same time, um, because they are self-employed, the majority of the migrant carers, for example, do not, are not covered by the sickness benefits. So they would have to, uh, it's only after the 43rd day of sickness that they would receive any sort of um, of benefit unless they pay additional social insurance which many of them don't um, and this obviously was quite an issue in the context of a um, of a pandemic um, to finalize also for example the quarantine period in which uh, migrant carers were placed when arriving in austria through these uh, formalized channels of um, charter trains and charter flights this was also unpaid uh, so, um, at the surface, 
a there was a coordinated response by the authorities in Austria to keep the migrant care worker model running. But at the same time, this response, I would say, uh, built very much on the inequalities, built very much on the quite a lot of the issues that uh, were coming already from uh, behind in terms of this migrant care worker model. Thank you, Ricardo. This is uh, really interesting and you brought in the nuance uh, and also brought to the surface that we're talking about a sector that is does not follow the normal kind of work and employment conditions that when policy put in assumes and hence maybe the, res the, the policy response doesn't have the positive effect because it's basically not addressing the structure and the and, you know inequalities within the structure that you have described because maybe a lot of people don't know the level of fragmentation of work and the types of contract and 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 the pay that doesn't uh, give you certain allowances etc so I, I wonder what's happening with Australia when we know that that the the maybe the response to COVID was quite uh, strict that Australia was one of the first to close border and to to do all these lockdowns. So Sarah would be really keen to to get your feedback and reflections on this. Certainly, thanks, Shireen. Well, we shut our borders uh, to close them shut in uh, February last year. They're still not formally opened, apart from some exceptions. And certainly people who are working in the care sector, both in residential aged care and home care who are on temporary visas, were very badly done by the government. Uh, the federal government provided quite a bit of income support to workers who lost hours of work, workers who lost jobs. And with the shuttering of residential aged care, the diminution in terms of services provided to home care clients a lot of workers lost hours of work, a lot of workers lost their jobs. And so a decision was made simply to provide no support whatsoever to people on temporary visas. So that that was one tangible effect. The, the, the complaints that certainly unions brought to the fore, and unions haven't been particularly good around migrant workers. They don't focus on them, despite the fact that they're a very large proportion of the workforce. But the big issue for all home care workers was access to PPE. And just recently in the last few months, and this is jumping ahead, but COVID vaccination has been mandated in residential aged care. It's been left to the states uh, and being a federal system. The federal government is in charge of aged care, but the states are in charge of health. So in Victoria, where I live, the Victorian government has now just mandated home care workers need to be fully vaccinated in order to continue to provide services. And the federal government is now requiring providers to provide details of the vaccination status of their workers. However, we don't know any other characteristics of those workers. So it would be impossible to tell, for example, if there has been a special reach out to migrant aged care workers, there has in terms of migrant communities, but our main problem in Australia is because we appeared to contain COVID in its first wave, we took a long time to get to vaccination and when it was realised vaccination was important, it was a huge issue of supply. So while residential aged care residents were designated as a priority group and so were workers, in fact, when the rollout occurred, workers were left out of that. And in home care, it's been even slower. But 
for a researcher like myself, it's incredibly difficult to get any data about the characteristics of workers who've lost hours, workers who've been vaccinated. In terms of what's happening now, we are moving to open our borders, even though we're in the middle of a Delta wave and a program that was put in place to bring in Pacifica Islanders to work in aged care in response to employer complaints that there weren't enough workers has just been reactivated. So 50 workers from the Kiribati Islands have just been flown to regional Queensland. It's very unclear what conditions await those workers when they arrive in these regional communities. And I think that is of a concern. And just following some of the debates in the UK, the same debates are, having, are happening here. If we need more workers, the argument goes we should provide better wages and better conditions. You know, following the debates in the UK, your, your Prime Minister has been um, putting forward a similar argument for not really adjusting migration settings. The particular pressure in Australia is that we've recently had a, a Royal Commission into aged age care quality and safety and it's now recommended mandated care hours per resident, which means that we would need to quadruple our current workforce. But in my view, and this is particularly the case in home care, the model of work organisation, which provides employers with numerical flexibility, keeps workers on short hours of work. There's mass underemployment, particularly for home care workers. And employers seem reluctant to offer more hours of work. And we know from survey data that migrants in particular, not surprisingly, want to work longer hours than do locally born workers because they need to set up homes, they need to support their families, etc. And yet that's a real issue, particularly in home care. You can have incredibly fragmented time schedules. You can work for as little as an hour at a, at, at a time without any guarantee of any further hours. So they're, they're ongoing issues that face the sector, but they're particularly acute for migrant workers. And I suppose what COVID, one of the harsh lessons, lessons of COVID was that you were a second-class citizen if you weren't locally born or weren't on a permanent visa. Thank you, Sarah. Um, it's, it's really um, clear that you know, the, the difficulties that faced by migrants within these kind of fragmented systems and unprotected systems. I guess in the UK response to COVID that is specific to long-term care have been has been very little. In fact, um, it has been criticised um, not to take into consideration the effect on the sector. So there has been some delays even in guidance to, you know, care homes, home care has remained um, in the blind spot. There hasn't been really guidance about, you know, how to meet shortages. But what was interesting that happened in the UK that we were we were discussing Brexit in the in relation to closing borders. Uh, and obviously there has been some efforts to maintain the stock of uh, EU, particularly EU migrants that are already in the country through the EU settlement scheme, many of whom uh, were working in, in the care sector. 
But one of the main policy and strategies that I've done as a reaction to COVID was the follow scheme that the government introduced, which is paying 80% of the salary of income of workers who had to stop working due to lockdowns. So we had really big lockdowns and certain sectors has been impacted dramatically, particularly the retail sector, the hospitality. And what happened that there was this interesting opposite direction flows with Brexit and prior to, to COVID, there was a lot of people leaving the country because they weren't certain about what's going to happen. COVID happened and then a lot of the local workers were available in, in the markets because of the lockdowns and closure. So the social care sector had a period of great recruitment at the beginning of the COVID. Uh, and that kind of delayed the thinking for a bit. So we did research in this area at the time uh, and people were saying we're recruiting for a post and we've got like 80 fantastic in CVs and we can pick the best. But that was very short lived was very temporary but what it did that it's kind of delayed the thinking about okay what's going to happen when people go back the uk didn't put in place um strong financial compensation for any of the social care sector unlike for example hazard pay that we've seen in canada um, there has been some extra money coming particularly from scotland wales northern ireland but not much in in the english side the, the single site restrictions and ensuring infection control, again, that was not mandatory like other countries. It was just recommendation. So in, and, and, and in that narrative, migrant workers were completely absent. So there was not a discussion that is specific to migrant care workers. So the UK is actually now facing a perfect storm because, you know, people gone back to work who were kind of in the in the local market and there has been now suddenly you know organization care organizations seeing a huge level of recruitment challenges huge shortages and and it's unclear how how that could be resolved and and the discussion sarah uh, you know you put it eloquently about better jobs which is fantastic but we can't see how the better job is going to happen and how they're going to happen fast enough to attract the workers and the reality of population aging where you don't have that surplus anyway. So there is a limit to this attraction. So even if you have a very good job, you can attract a certain number, but we're running at a very low unemployment rate anyway. So it's around, it's less than 5%. So you have a little bit of room, but not a huge room. And we're thinking about that you need 20 to 25% of the workforce, which is estimated at 1.6 million jobs in the UK, then we're talking about huge numbers. So I think this this hasn't been really thought through. And I guess within all these discussions at the higher policy level, nobody or very, very few people talk about the implications on the individual. So people who were able to come from, say, South Africa to do a bit of work here for in the UK for three, four weeks and then go back or three months and go back. That was not possible. And that had a lot of implications on the well-being of migrants. So maybe we take then, you know, we take our discussion towards thinking about the humans doing the work. So these people that we rely on, they are either presented in the policy without a, a clear understanding you know of their conditions or completely absent from the policy picture and and we talk about the evidence that we have as researchers 
around the particular working conditions and well-being, situating this within a really difficult sector. So it's not like it's rosy for everybody else, but realizing that migrant workers have an extra layer of implications uh, that have, you know, affect them adversely. So Ricardo, you have been really, um, your center have been really active in doing surveys and talking to migrant workers, and it would be really insightful for us to, to give us some findings from your recent work, particularly in that period of COVID. Yeah, thank you very much, Sarinda. I think that's a very good point that, that, that you raise, uh, because uh, as I was talking about some of the measures that were implemented, uh, such as this extension of the rotas, for example, in uh, in Austria following the, the closure of the borders. Uh, of course, what this sort of, um, what this didn't consider was the fact that um, a lot of these migrant care, care workers have families uh, away from Austria, have also family responsibilities away from Austria, not only um, in terms of the parents uh, of these care workers that they uh, probably will be looking after during this fortnight periods where they are in their home countries, but also children, uh, because this is very typically uh, the sandwich generation that has really um, caring responsibilities. And this is, of course, these are mostly also uh, women. And this is something that I think has been very much uh, overlooked in the discussion um, of this, of this, uh, of this um, model that relies a lot on migrant uh, carers. Uh, besides that, um, we've, we've carried out a, re a survey on the working conditions of uh, migrant carers in, employed in the formal sector, so in residential care homes and in the home care sector. Um, and we compare this with native um, native workers. Uh, and what we found is, uh, curiously, at, you know, in the, in the first layer of comparison, we didn't find much in terms of differences in um, working conditions between migrants and natives. So that was a sort of positively surprised result uh, we got. Um, but of course, a lot of this was driven by the fact that, um, as, as Sarah mentioned before, uh, a lot of the migrant care workers, they really want to work longer hours. They want to sort of save as, and earn as much money as possible so that they can send this back home. They're, they also tend to be younger. So there's this sort of young migrant effect uh, that we see very much uh, also in our, um, in our survey sample. Um, and the other aspect that then we were able to uncover when we looked a little bit more careful into these uh, differences in working conditions is that although we didn't find um, significant differences between EU migrants and native workers, we found quite significant differences between non-EU uh, migrants and both native and um, EU migrant workers. And we did this also together with some colleagues in, in Sweden with a similar survey. And, and, and curiously, even though the, the countries of origin outside the EU were very dissimilar between Austria and, uh, and Sweden, we, we had similar findings there as well. So this, I think, uh, is an aspect also that we should bear very much in mind, sort of this, uh, how, the, how the migrant care worker uh, model intersects with these different sort of migration regimes as well. And I was, I was thinking very much of this as listening to the, uh, both the Australian and the uh, UK uh, sort of um, context. And, and this is something that is, perhaps going to become even more relevant also in the context of Austria, because we've seen already that there has been um, a change in the profile of the migrant care workers we have. So 
up until a couple of years ago, the majority of the migrant carers were really coming from Slovakia, uh, from Hungary. So there's a really neighboring countries where it's relatively easy to commute. So to give you an idea, between Bratislava and Vienna, there's only about 45 minutes uh, distance with the car. Um, now, about three years ago, it was the first time that uh, carers from Romania became the uh, single most uh, relevant group among these migrant care workers. We've also witnessed, uh, um, with the little data that we have, an increase in uh, care workers that are coming from further uh, places in Eastern Europe, many of them not covered by the, that are not members of the EU. And this, of course, raises even more issues, not only in terms of uh, what this, um, what is the effect of these longer uh, spells outside of home, but also in terms of social protection. There are a number of um, mechanisms that guarantee social protection, that guarantee also the transfer of pension rights, for example, within the EU. And these uh, are not always the same when we talk about countries that are outside of the, uh, of the EU. One final aspect I would like to highlight in terms of the well-being of migrant carers, and I think particularly in the context of the pandemic, is um, so a lot of these migrant carers, as I said, they, they, they provide care in people's own homes, which means that they were also as socially isolated as the older people that they were caring for themselves. Uh, and this was, again, something that there was a lot of emphasis placed in Austria, and rightly so, on, on the increase in, in, in loneliness, in social isolation of older people. Um, but I don't think there was a um, similar concern, a similar sort of spotlight placed on the migrant carers that were sharing the, the houses with these same older people. Um, and that were not only at a heightened risk of infection as well, but were uh, displaced from their families, from their social networks. So for, for whom the question of psychological well-being arising from isolation, I think, was is very, very, very much uh, relevant. Thanks, Ricardo. I, I was, you know, all what he said resonates with a lot of things in the UK, but I was really interested as well when you said the, about the differentials in relation to being uh, EU or non-EU migrants and the similarities that you found with Sweden, although the country of the country of origin are different. Um, and just thinking about the future, how how we see this moving forward in terms of you know moving post-COVID, so hopefully things will return to normal one day. It's not going to be normal. It's going to be the new normal. Uh, but the, that maybe COVID have made us all pose and think because it's just kind of sudden impact. And hopefully maybe that would would shape their future policy. So as researchers, as strong researchers in this field, what would be your advice to the, the kind of future looking policies in relation to aged care and the role of migrants within that? I'll, I'll start by Sarah, uh, because I know you're very involved in this policy and, and, and I know that you have been uh, working in this area for, for, for many decades around the, the bigger picture of employment conditions and better jobs. Where we go from here, ideally, what's your advice for policymakers? Well, it, it's interesting, Shireen. I mean, if, if there can be a silver lining of COVID, it really shone a light, particularly on residential aged care, unfortunately much less on home care, but how vital it was, how terrifying it was to have, certainly in Victoria, in our second wave, we had a very high death rate, well, relatively not high compared to the UK, but relatively high death rate 
in residential aged care. That's where most of our deaths were. So there has been a grasp by the community at large, but certainly perhaps reluctantly by the federal government that something has to happen around wages and conditions. So for example, I'm involved as an expert witness in two different work value cases under our industrial relations system, which are seeking to increase the wages of both frontline residential aged care workers and home care workers by $5 an hour. Now, whether or not this is going to be successful is a moot point, but the Royal Commission is probably the first of 20 inquiries we've had into the aged care sector over the last 20 years to actually say, this has to be addressed. Yes, we may well need migration, but until we can be providing decent wages and conditions, a career structure, we are not going to be able to provide the care because that's also the other thing that came out of the Royal Commission was a poor quality of care. And given that our rhetoric, uh, quite rightly, we adhere to this idea of relationship-based care. And this is why the Royal Commission has mandated uh, up to three uh, hours per resident per day of individual care that comes in in 2022. It's simply going to need more workers to provide that. And if we're actually going to be providing that in a meaningful way, then we've got to invest a lot more in training and resourcing workers. The other interesting thing to come out both through COVID and the Royal Commission is a lack of accountability of providers for the aged care funding that they receive. So we have limited aged care funding, nothing like the austerity. We haven't suffered the austerity cuts you have in the UK. But we all used to think, well, we just need more money in the aged care sector. Increasingly, focus is now on governance, on private providers, whether they be not-for-profits, for-profits, actually having some accountability for their funds so that there is a, a large and vocal consumer voice now around aged care, older people in their families. We want decent aged care, given the ageing population, the increasingly complex, both social but also clinical needs, we need a really good skill mix. So these messages, I think, have been received loudly and clearly, and the what was exposed during COVID was appalling care was unpreparedness of providers who ticked a survey and said yes they were prepared for the second wave of COVID with our quality agency and clearly they weren't they didn't even have basic infection control measures in place they were putting um, residents with COVID in with residents who didn't have COVID I mean extraordinary extraordinary stuff but it's really I think made the Australian community more broadly see this is really important and I think that we will see hopefully an improvement in conditions and recognition of the aged care workforce but I think we will always we are going to be reliant on migrant workers and we need to be looking at ways in which we can then provide pathways to permanency and um, this model of having been tied to an employer that was tried in New Zealand. That was the model for bringing in low-skilled aged care workers, once again, mainly from Pacific Islands. And that was seen as creating incredible vulnerability for workers. So I think we need to make sure that we have 
you know, a, a supply of workers who are attracted by conditions in the sector, but also, if they wish, not everyone wishes, a pathway to permanency. I think that's going to be, certainly in the Australian context, really important. Thank you very much, Sarah. I think that is um, very wise words that we want to propagate, and I'm sure that we can resonate with the, with a lot of your recommendations. Uh, Ricardo, what's the, what's, what do you think of the future, especially with the specific context that you've got with the living care, which is something not present in Australia, for example, and, and, you know, maybe the difficulties in regulating that, though that I know that it is quite relatively highly regulated in Austria, for example, when we compare to Italy, where there is a huge reliance on living care, but it's very much uh, unregulated. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a very interesting and challenging question, actually, how this is going to evolve in, 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 in the wake of the uh, COVID, because I could see, at least in the Austrian case, um, sort of different contradictory sort of uh, forces in play. So on the one hand, I don't think the sort of the appetite or the demand for this um, live-in arrangement is going to diminish. Um, especially as we have also witnessed uh, in the in, Austria, in the Austrian society a large increase in the um, labor market attachment of women, um, and and in Austria traditionally care um, even more perhaps than in other countries has been sort of um, placed firmly in the realm of the family, and the twenty four hour care solution was is also also a, a way to outsource part of this from the family and from um, working Austrian women to uh, very often uh, working uh, non-Austrian um, women. So I don't think, so this, this, this demand I think is going to continue there. It's going to continue particularly also in a society that values very much uh, aging in place, that varies very much the maintenance of, of older people uh, within their sort of community uh, environments and for which for the time being, uh, there is also a, uh, has been at least, a steady supply of, of people interested to work as 24-hour carers, even if this, as I said, has, even if the profile of these carers has, has moved further further east and further further away to some extent from the, um, from the EU. So that's one, one aspect. On the other hand, uh, perhaps also because this is, um, this is a phenomenon that pertains very much also to the neighboring countries. I could see that sooner or later there will be a call for a greater coordination of um, policies that um, that rely on migrant carers, or in this in this transnational movement of, of of carers. And and there 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 are also some indications, for example, that this is not only a phenomenon of sort of eastern. Um, born um, carers moving into Austria. We've seen also in the past that also uh, nurses from Germany, for example, were very keen on working in some of the care homes in Austria because, for example, they perceived to have much less uh, administrative burden when they when they worked in Austria than in, they did in, in Germany. Um, there's also quite a lot to be said about the recognition of uh, competences, um, particularly in, 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 in a context such as the Austrian one, where, as you said, it, it's still relatively regulated. So there is, um, even for these migrant 24-hour uh, carers, there are some conditions in terms of recognition of, of experience and of competences to work in this sector. So I could see, uh, or hope to see at least, a greater 
attempt at coordinating um, the, this 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 whole phenomenon of transnational care within the EU, and I would say even from uh, from outside the EU. Uh, I could imagine that this would be also something that might play a role in terms of the negotiation of uh, accession to the EU for some countries, um, for example, coming from the former um, from former Yugoslavia. The danger, on the other hand, is that I think the, the pandemic really put a spotlight on, on long-term care, on the low-cost model of long-term care that we've had in many countries in Europe. Um, but I think a lot of it is going to be also determining sort of in the period after the pandemic in terms of how much this newfound relevance, uh, policy relevance, and, and also public in the public discourse is going to carry forward. Um, and I'm thinking very, very much in terms of how much, I think this will be very much determined also to what extent we will have the return of austerity policies or not to the European space, uh, because this is going to, I think, uh, also shape very much the ability that different countries will have to really invest the money that is necessary to create proper and resilient long-term care uh, systems. Thank you very much, Ricardo. It's really interesting that that relevant to the Brexit discussion here, that even with the open border and thinking about extensions of the EU, the issues of competition and migrant agency remain. This is something we didn't discuss. It will need another podcast to talk about, but we, we don't operate in a vacuum. So countries have competitors and migrants have their own agency to go through the decision process, where to go and how long to stay. Um, and I think maybe I'll invite Agnes here just to tell us about the the, the kind of current discussion, because there is the, the visa scheme, which is all this way, but it doesn't really cover social care. Uh, there is, of course, the new levy in health and so for so health and social care, which is 1.5% uh, extra national insurance taxation that are coming into effect in April. But more and more, we learn that it's more in health rather than social care. Um, so, as, as I mentioned earlier, with, with Brexit from the 1st of January 2021, free movement for, for EU nationals to come and work in the UK. Ended. People had to apply for the for the EU settlement status to to stay. At the same time, and there was some discussion, some debate around this: the new visa or the new immigration um, system, which very heavily built on on the old one, basically cut off the the work route to social care because social care most jobs in, in social care would not qualify based on the education level, so the qualification level. So this was below the, the threshold. And even in, in certain roles that would, for example, senior um, care workers, the pay levels in the sector are really not sufficient. Theoretically, it's, it's possible to come with, with a work visa to certain roles in, in direct social care, but in, in reality, it is very difficult. But in the new system, the government introduced the health and care visa, which I think slightly misleadingly named, because in reality, it is very much a, a, a care and clinical workforce visa. And to date, so from the beginning of the year, there were 13,000 applications. Only about 300 came from uh, EU countries. And the majority of these are most likely are probably for the NHS. 
effectively there is no kind of direct route into, into social care for people who would like to move to the UK to start working. And and this is kind of starting to show. We haven't seen the full impact because it's it's going to unfold over a longer period of time. But the most recent skills for care data shows that among new starters, the the share of people from outside with a non-UK nationality fell from about five percent down to two three percent. So that that's quite considerable. Um, there are. A lot of talk about, I also mentioned kind of sector specific kind of temporary visa schemes. There are calls for, for, for social care and uh, the government reopened this discussion. So there is the migration advisory committee that they are looking into this possibility. So it really remains to be, to be seen. It's very clear there are very different interests and how this, these can be balanced. It's, this is a very interesting, very interesting period. Yeah, absolutely, it's a very, very difficult period, and it's um, there is no kind of easy winning cards because even if we think about a temporary visa or a specific visa, we have to think about the implications, um, and whether we are taking a whole approach in terms of better jobs, seeing really clear steps to improve jobs. But realizing that the, the 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 contribution of migrants has to remain part of that, and then how to integrate their contribution in in a decent way and in in a, in a way that based on human rights, really, to recognize that we're not putting them in an extra vulnerable position because they're already in a vulnerable position and can accept um, certain working conditions. I think this is a topic that is not going to go to sleep. It's a topic that we are all kind of trying to deal with in different countries. And it has been really great to listen to the insights from Austria and Australia. And, and I've been really grateful to have you as partners during the sustainable care program of work, which is coming to an end this year. So I, I just want to end by thanking you greatly for your contribution over the last few years for the program and also for your contribution today uh, and I just give you the space to say any final remarks that you might have so thank you Ricardo very much for having you today thank you Sherry it was a pleasure it was a pleasure to to be here and it was a pleasure also uh, to listen to the experiences of the UK and Australia as well and um, also for my part a uh, big, big um, commitment of the of the work that you're doing in sustainable care, and I look forward to uh, to accompany the uh, the project further. Thank you, Ricardo. Sarah, we're very grateful to have you. You had to deal with time difference and time zones, so we're very grateful to have you today. It's a pleasure to be here, Shireen, and very nice to be here with you and. Um, Agnes, in particular, the work that you're coming, uh, that you've been doing in the Sustainable Care Project, it's so important. And what I've been impressed by today, and particularly hearing from Ricardo about the Austrian situation, is more the commonalities. Issues might be differently expressed, and there is obviously the historical and the cultural backgrounds, but this is a real, I think, a rich example of we, if, if we go back to Fiona Williams' idea of intersecting regimes so that they can produce very different outcomes, but there is such a strong similarity, particularly in the space of home care between all of the countries. That, yeah, I, I feel I've learnt a lot from this, from this podcast, so thank you for letting me be part of it.
Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this podcast. And uh, we hope you enjoy it and to look out for more of our outputs from the Sustainable Care Programme. Thank you.